Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The God of peace will be with you. Will you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, in light of songs that we've sung, we come today to confess that we are all poor. We are all powerless. We are all ill-equipped to come to you on our own, but rather need an advocate. We need an intercessor. We need someone to go between us and you so that we might be in right relationship with you, and Christ has done it. We need no one else to go to you on our behalf, but him alone. So what we do this morning, we seek to make you our true vision. You who are the Lord of our hearts would reign as well in our minds. That we would submit not only the deeds of our hands, but the thoughts of our minds, Lord. The feelings of our hearts submitting all things to you, loving you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving each other as we love ourselves. We pray that you would speak through these two short verses this morning, that you would prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, as well. We don't want to rush a Sunday like this especially to consider that the reason that we can come to you now is because Jesus body was broken on our behalf. His blood was spilled so that we could be cleaned, so that we could be made pure in your sight. So I ask for your help now, Lord, as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the cultural idea of the mind today is a safe haven for all of our own personal and private thoughts. And even in the most intimate friendships where much of those private thoughts of the mind are shared, it would be impossible, and I think for all of us, undesirable, for someone to have complete access to every thought we host in our minds day to day. Would you agree? Undesirable? Very much so. <laughs> Maybe taken as an elementary theological fact that God is omniscient or all-knowing, knows everything that ever was and everything that ever will be. And he's therefore just as privy to all of our thoughts as we are, and in fact, probably more so even. I've been struck by both fear and great comfort with this truth as I've walked with Christ. Usually, though, it's been the former. Fear comes when I consider that I am totally depraved apart from Christ, that amounting to the fact that there is nothing in my mind that is excellent or praiseworthy on my own. But apart from Christ, I am dead in my trespasses and in my sin. So I recognize that my mind is a place that is not acceptable to the Lord. Because from my mind, from my heart, from who I am on the inside comes all sorts of wickedness and sin, as Jesus would say. Considering closest friendships, there would be no chance in the world that I would even agree to allowing even my own wife, my best friend, and the closest confidant unfettered access to my mind. 
I would be beyond ashamed of what she would see there. And I share a lot with my wife, pretty much everything. In fact, sometimes she just tells me, just stop, just kidding. The Lord has known every single thing about me, about all of us, um, from long before we even drew our first breath. So on his side, if you are in Christ, when your relationship with him went from judge and condemned sinner to heavenly father and beloved son, there was not an influx of new information on his part, but rather a new perspective on you. We also, of course, gained a new perspective when we came to know God through Jesus Christ. But we're also given, as all believers are, the mind of Christ, as we see in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So thinking about the mind of Christ and the point at which we receive it, he's saying here, it's yours if what happens? If you are in Christ Jesus. So if you put your faith in him, if he is your savior, you have the mind of Christ. There's some growing up into that, of course, that needs to happen. But it's been given to us at the point of salvation. So, therefore, our knowledge of God should grow intensely as we begin to walk with him in, in new relationship with him and, and his spirit opening up the Bible to teach us, giving us fellow Christians to love and walk with, opening a direct line of communication to the Father for us through prayer. What Christ has done at the cross to forgive us of our sin has placed us in a brand new state of existence. We who are in Christ were once enemies of God, but are now in perfect relationship with him through Christ, such that when he sees us, he looks at us the way he looks at Jesus. We're not Jesus. Jesus is the only son of God. In a mysterious way, through faith in him, we become children of God. We talked about this last week a little bit with baptism. If you remember Jesus' baptism, such an awesome passage in the beginning of Matthew where it says that when Jesus came out of the water, Jesus, who was God the Son, the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove, and the heavens opened up, and God said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well, what? Pleased. And that is what he says of you if you are in Christ. He is well pleased with you this morning. It's awesome truth to rest in. So today we look at a passage that calls us to a greater purpose in thinking than simply processing, deciding, and acting as we're even doing right now. You know, your mind's working to think about things. You're hearing, hopefully you're hearing what I'm saying and you're thinking about them. Or you might be thinking about something else. You're also thinking about, you know, your, your body's literally thinking about sitting and not standing up and running around or whatever it might be. There's a lot going on. When Paul talks to us this morning about thinking about these things that he's going to mention, he's not talking about thinking in this, that simple of a way. What we're called here to do is to ponder the great truths about God. So as we walk through this passage, listen for and ask the Holy Spirit for clear and specific instruction for your life, that you may faithfully obey the call to think and practice today. So let's move through these three ideas in these two verses with anticipation because the Lord will continue to, as we've quoted several times from Augustine, he will command what he will and he will give what he commands. So verse eight, our first point here, the pondering of excellence in our thoughts leads us to this idea that we ought to feed our mind with God-honoring things. 
So you may probably come to this passage and begin to think on things like media that you consume. And imagine that we need to either cancel our home internet or give up on trying to obey such a command as this. Some may be called to such extreme measures to secure a place in their mind for the things described in verse 8. You know, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Stick it in your pocket and try not to use it for the rest of the day? No, he's much more radical than that. He says what? Cut it off, right? Sounds like Sharia law, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean that literally, okay? So please, I always feel like I have to say that just in case somebody goes home and says, all right, I'm going to get serious about my Christian law. You know, don't, don't take it too literally here, okay? But what he's saying is, is that if anything gets in your way of, of worshiping God, if anything leads you into sin, you need to run far from it. Make sense? And if something like internet in your household, which is basically like having electricity in your household anymore, right? I mean, not, not everybody has it, of course, but you know, it's one of those things that we just kind of see as a u- usual utility. Well, if having that in your house causes you to sin to such a degree that you don't know how to function with it in there, you've got to get it out, right? Or whatever it may be that's causing you to sin. Having a Facebook page could do that. Having a smartphone can do that. I know it sounds very countercultural and almost unrealistic, but you don't need a smartphone. Did you know that? I have a friend, actually. Let me see. I have two friends, actually, who, t- who carry a non-smartphone. Does anybody carry a non-smartphone still? Well, all right. Now I have four friends. Yes. See, this is how we learn things about each other. Right? <laughs> very cool. But we need to be careful to consider the things in our lives that may be tying us away from... There it is. All right. Does it flip even? Yeah? Nice. Wow. Hey, if you want a history lesson, kids, um, <laughs> after church... There we go. All right. Five. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's good. Um, so... While it's important for us to cut out things in our lives that would lead us away from God, that would lead us into sin, this verse is one of those verses that kind of makes it see, it makes us show, wow, sorry, makes us understand that there is more to it than just cutting things out of our lives. We need to press in and actually insert Christian practices into our schedule, into our regular patterns of life. Not simply say, I'm going to stop watching so much TV or I'm going to stop using my cell phone so much or whatever it may be, rather saying, I'm going to commit to this one thing. And rather than, again, making space for it, bring it in. Make it a key component of your life to ponder these great things about God. I'm getting ahead of myself here. It isn't a matter of us simply crushing the idols in our lives. Rather, actively filling our lives with time in the Word Time in prayer, time in fellowship with other believers. I'm just going to say, I've been meaning to say for weeks, I'm trying to insert this idea of word, prayer, and fellowship every week. Okay, so if you're hearing that and you're wondering if I'm doing it on purpose, while a lot of things I don't do on purpose, that is one of them. Okay? Um, So, word, prayer, fellowship, these means of God's grace in our lives. We need to make time for those things um, and, and make them a priority. Creating memories of joy in the word, prayer, and fellowship that we can look back on, rejoice over, and ponder throughout our weeks. So I read an interesting statistic. According to eMarketer.com, on average, U.S. adults spend almost four hours a day collectively on what? I've already kind of talked about it. On your phone. Yeah. 
four hours. That's a long time. They actually estimate also that the annual growth of phone usage is going up by 11 minutes every year. And at the time of writing, they predicted by the end of 2019, last year, that the smartphone will have surpassed TV for receiving more time daily. And I think that we can probably all imagine that that's true at this point, right? That there's more time spent on your smartphone even than the TV. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly because it's easier to just say, hey, kid, here you go, take this, right? <laughs> I got to confess, I, I did it this morning. I mean, Nora was here and Sarah was practicing and I got to do stuff for church and VeggieTales is on YouTube. Here, here Nora, go ahead. It's, it's not a terrible tool. It's a helpful tool. Um, but it's a, it's a question of, is there, is there a possibility that there could be too much of it going on? It said that the leading activity in apps is digital audio with the average U.S. adult listening to over 50 minutes of audio via mobile apps per day. Social networking comes next with 40 minutes of app time. The other major categories are mobile video, gaming, and messaging. So those are averages. Some of us are average. Some of us are below average on this. And maybe some of us are above average. Not pointing any fingers. I am a firm believer that technology and all the various media streams that are available, meaning TV, movies, music, comic books, video games, magazines, books, web pages, etc., anything like that, those, those methods of, of, of transmitting information are in themselves, in the strictest definition, actually amoral. They're not good or bad by themselves. So because you play video games or read comic books or have a Netflix account, doesn't immediately mean that those things are automatically producing sin in your life. Does that make sense? Cannot say, I saw somebody go to the comic book store, they are a terrible sinner. Or... Which, I mean, I guess people don't really go to... Although there is a comic book store in Lima, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Neat. Yeah. Fascinating. Anyway. <laughs> it's interesting, though, to realize that 17% of our time each day, we are staring at our phones. Now, 17% doesn't sound like a whole lot. But how long is 17%? It's, again, four hours. So if you were at work, and if you work an eight-hour day, and you took four hours just sitting there looking at your phone... Would your boss be okay with that? No. Probably not, right? You would probably imagine that that's a complete waste of time, that you weren't doing what you came to work to do that day. So it is, it is in fact, quite a, a large percentage of our day. Speaking of Netflix, one website said last year that Netflix reported um, 117.58 million subscribers collectively watch 140 million hours of content pause for effect, on the average day. Wow, right? Yeah. That's a lot of time. So Streaming Observer and Editor-in-Chief divided the numbers of hours by the number of subscribers to find that the average user spends one hour and 11 minutes or 71 minutes each day watching Netflix. Again, some of us are average, some of us are below average, and some of us are scratching our heads trying to figure out how many episodes of The Office you watched last night. Our thoughts are a place of freedom in our perspective. And when we think about how we think and what we put into our minds, we want to say, that is my realm. It is up to me to decide what to put in here. One of the last things we want is to be told in our society how to think, or much less what to think. But in fact, Paul is doing that 
for us today in verses 8 and 9. As we look at the whole of the verse, we encounter a cause and effect type of formula. So find these things, think on them, put into practice the apostolic example, and the God of peace will be with you. The issue of managing our thoughts is probably more pertinent to life today than at any other point in history, as we are the most information-saturated culture that has ever existed. This information moves in a constant flow, vying for your attention and seeking to shape your perspectives and priorities according to theirs. You think about how God created us in his image to reflect him. And in a way, everything that comes at us through all these media platforms are trying to shape us in their image. Trying to impose their views and their priorities and their perspectives. So we read a couple weeks ago that those who walk as enemies of the cross in chapter 3, verse 19... Those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ are those whose minds are, quote, set on earthly things, which there is an abundance, and again, more so today than ever in all human history. Conversely, as in this passage, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, to set our minds on things above where Christ is. Set your mind, ponder, deliberately set time aside to feed your mind with praiseworthy things things. Before I forget, I, I meant to put this in here, but I had forgotten, and I'm not going to forget again, hopefully. One of my first fellowship meals here, I sat down with the teenagers and had a super fun conversation, very spiritual conversation about fast food. It's a joke, it's not a spiritual conversation. But we were, we were comparing fast food restaurants and what's, what's really good to eat, what's, what's junk. And Taco Bell, of course, came up in this conversation. And it amazed me that one of the kids, in responding to the idea of Taco Bell, sat there and said, yeah, Taco Bell is not praiseworthy. Wow. And that's this verse that he's quoting here, too. You know, he used this whole thing to look at something like Taco Bell and said, yeah, not praiseworthy, not interested. What we think matters. It matters for our practice. It matters for relationships. And most importantly, it matters for our worship. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now let's just point out for a second here too, and not to belittle what Peter's saying here, because what he's saying is absolutely necessary. But if we are in Christ, what's different about this roaring lion if we are in Christ? What is he missing? What doesn't he have? teeth, claws, strength, right? Don't underestimate the enemy. The enemy is crafty. He even comes as an angel of light in some circumstances to trick and deceive people into following him and leading them away from God. But what we ought to know, and what's very important is, as spiritual warfare is a real thing in the Christian life, you do have an adversary prowling around, and he's looking to devour you, but he cannot if you are in Christ. So stay sober-minded, okay? This is, this is more than just saying don't be drunk. It's saying keep your mind focused and fixed on these kind of things that Paul is talking about here in chapter 4, verse 8 of Philippians. So while the world offers us its own way of thinking, the devil is ready to convince us, as he did with Adam and Eve, that God doesn't really have our best interests in mind. And our flesh deeply desires to agree with him on that. 
Our threefold enemies are present in this battle of the mind. And so Paul will lay out for us a description of excellent or praiseworthy things to ponder. And as we do, we'll find that our joy will increase and we will be be led by the Holy Spirit to deeper levels of obedience. So, look at the verse again. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here is the starting point. Paul's not saying that everything we think about from the morning to night needs to fit into the categories he's placed here. That'd be impossible. This verb, think about, I've switched out in your outline to ponder, not only because it set me up for three key words that start with the letter P this week, but because we are not simply thinking here the way we think about brushing our teeth or who should go first at a four-way stop or what time we are meeting for coffee. The Greek word here is logizomai, which is not that. Logizomai, which um, Alec Matir, the commentary writer on Philippians, um, defined as to ponder, to give proper weight and value to, and to allow the resultant appraisal to influence the way life is to be lived. So to kind of break that down a little bit, to ponder is what we're kind of taking as the main verb here. So we're giving proper weight and value to these things that Paul's describing. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, give the proper weight to those kinds of things. And then, as we'll see in the second verse here, allow the resulting appraisal, that is, after you've looked to these things that are lovely and true and honorable, etc., you've appraised them as such, and now you must give influence to the way your life is lived in light of them. Make sense? It is not enough for us to simply, in a way, it's almost like coming to church. We come to church and we open up God's word. We spend time looking at and pondering what he has said to us and marveling at his grace and his love and his goodness. But as as David prayed, if we just kind of go through the motions here and then walk out, we have not obeyed this verse, particularly verse 9. This is what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First of all, In one sense, we can't expect to understand this blessing of the presence of the peace of God if we're not pondering the things of God and acting in light of those things. So we have our outline, ponder, practice, and the presence of the peace of God. We add in that final phrase in verse 9. What is described in verse 8 is not a restriction given for what is allowed to be dealt with in your mind. It's a description of the things that call for real, concentrated thought. Time set aside with your phone off kind of thought. Looking to the word in prayer is the first place for filling our minds with praiseworthy things. Someone rightly described prayer, and I think this is probably the best definition of, of what true prayer is. Thinking God's thoughts after him. You might have heard that before. Starting with the word, consider what the passage is telling you about God, about yourself, about Christ, about heaven, whatever it may be, then pray in light of it. It's such a cool thing that we're kind of looking at this passage in in light of Sunday school here. We're learning about inductive Bible study. And so today David taught us about observing the text. And then we're going to move to interpretation. And then we'll move to application. 
Okay, and so, uh, and this is not some, I mean, I'm going to tell you, I spend a large chunk of my week doing that for this moment. You don't need to spend that much time because the truth is, is that God's word is so rich that even spending a smaller portion of time in it will result in observing and interpreting and applying some awesome stuff about God's word. Okay, so come to Sunday school is the main point, right? Anyhow. If we're looking for power in our prayers, we ought to ponder or meditate and give weight to what we are reading and offer our requests to God in light of that. I'm fully convinced that the Lord loves to hear his word in the mouths of his children. Don't you love it when you watch your kids growing up? Don't you love it when they start to say and do things that you do? Sometimes it's super embarrassing, but it's really adorable all the time, right? Man, she said, Nora says things that just crack me up because I'm like, oh, she got that for me. So what's the thing that she keeps saying now that's, help me with the sermon illustration real quick. What is it? Oh, yeah. So, but we don't say that. I don't know where that came from. For some reason, instead of saying she wants something, she says, I should like some chocolate milk. It's just like, where, is there too much British TV going on in her house or something? I don't know. Um, oh, a moment. That's what it is. I always tell her like, okay, well, give me a moment and I'll be right with you. She said, I would like to do that for a moment. Or I would, I'll be there in a moment. Those kind of things. It's adorable, right? Because you're, you're seeing your kids are modeling what they're seeing. They're imitating what they see. And you guys, the reason that that's so cute, not to be trite about this, but you are the children of God. And he wants you to imitate godly examples as we looked at a couple weeks ago that Paul commanded us. And he wants you to ultimately imitate Christ. He loves it when that happens. And when you pray, start with God's word. Because how many of us can admit, like, I go to prayer and I don't know exactly what to pray for. You sit in prayer circles and somebody asks for prayer requests and we all kind of sit there and stare at each other, right? But if we look to God's word, we have a launching pad for what kind of things need to be prayed for because we're thinking God's thoughts after him. Anyway, let's talk about August Rodin. Anybody know who that is? I didn't know until this past week probably one of the best known sculptors of the 1800s and I say that knowing no other sculptors in the 1800s if only for his famous sculpture which would be this one coming up do we get the picture in there no oh we didn't get the picture oh that's okay all right so well then you should come up and pose for me <laughs> for this one does anybody know what this sculpture is called Yes, the pastor, Nick. no, just kidding. The thinker, right? We all know this, right? Even, anytime you do this, it's either T-bowing or the thinker, right? Yeah. So, so imagine the, the thinker, right? And uh, Auguste Rodin was the one who sculpted this in the late 1800s. And it's really a very impressive um, sculpture. And it has appeared to uh, be referencing, it, 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 well, it's been referenced um, hundreds of times in the early since the early 1900s. So Rodin is quoted as saying, what makes my thinker think is that he thinks not only with his brain, but with his knotted brow, his distended nostrils, and compressed lips, with every muscle of his arms, his, backs and his, his back and his legs, with his clenched fist and gripping toes. He seems to communicate that the thinking is not exclusively cerebral, but is also a matter of physical exertion. It's easy to get excited about doing things in the Christian life discipleship and outreach, fellowship, they all sound very active, whereas 
thinking, studying, praying, reading God's word doesn't immediately feel like the doing in the active sense that perhaps many of us are geared towards. This idea of the thinker sitting there, what he's thinking, he's not thinking about what he's going to order for lunch, you guys. He's not thinking about, you know, what, he's not thinking out his schedule or, or whether he, turned the, he left the oven off or whatever it might be. He's, he's intently focused on something. And it took effort. He expresses effort, uh, this Rodan guy does in this sculpture. If we don't have a foundation of knowing and a, a, a method of imparting wisdom and truth and knowledge into our minds to ponder and to feast off of, then I don't know that we can do the Christian life rightly. We cannot simply jump into evangelism and the rest of ministry without a foundation of what we know. Many of you are driven by productive use of your time. It may be that stopping to pray and spend time in God's presence doesn't give the effect that mowing the lawn or completing a project may do. However, dedicated time of pondering, meditating, delighting in Christ is among the proofs of one being born again. So take the active route in your thinking. Plan out how and when you will ponder these praiseworthy things. January is nearly over, and so we may expect to move past the discussion of reading plans and resources, but we're not going to. I would tell you today, on January 26th, at least for today, the last Sunday of the month, if you're struggling to make a regular plan, a regular pattern of reading God's word, don't ignore the need of that in your life. Pick up an F260 reading plan over on the table, or check the back of your Bible for a reading plan. Or go to BibleGateway.com or use the YouVersion Bible app on your phone. You can find a good audio Bible. You can do something new this year, even if it feels too late to start a New Year's resolution. Because that's not what it's about. It's about creating a pattern in your life of feasting on the truth of God's Word. God's Word is the greatest place to find what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. Those excellent things, those praiseworthy things are to be found in His Word first and foremost. Think on Christ. Remember the high point of this letter, not Job. <laughs> the high point of this letter, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We looked at that earlier. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This morning we got a little uh, homework assignment in Sunday school and it inspired me to give you one here too. I'm sure you're feeling inspired too, right? Absolutely. My challenge to you in thinking about this high point of Philippians chapter 2, of the, of the whole letter, is to take Philippians 4, 8 and ponder Philippians 2, 5 through 11 today, or sometime this week. 
and you don't have to, I, there's no homework assignment, there's no test or anything for that. It's really just for your own edification, so take it or leave it. But imagine for a second, if you, for a second, if you were to you know, print out Philippians 4 or write out Philippians 4, 8, and then look to Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and consider what in this is true, what in this is honorable, what in this is just, pure, lovely, commendable, is there any excellence in what Christ has done? Is there anything praiseworthy in the humility of our Savior? All those things are to be found in the great news of the gospel. Next, the practice of excellence in your life. Commit to acting in light of these praiseworthy things. Don't simply consume them, but act upon them. Act in light of them. Rene Descartes is probably most famous for saying, I think, therefore, I am. Human thought proves human existence. While an oversimplification of his argument, our flow of thought is essential to informing our identity, our character, and our actions. For our purposes, though, those things that we have been called to ponder must necessarily extend into and become evident in our practice. Two weeks ago, we saw Paul call us to imitate him and keep our eyes on the ones who have the example that we found in the apostles. He returns and emphasizes this point here. Just as our thinking pours into our actions, our imitating God gospel examples leads us to becoming imitable gospel examples as well. Paul used four words that imply his active example in this. The Philippians learned, received, heard and saw the example of Paul's discipline of thinking on excellent things. He was teaching, giving, speaking, and showing all these things to the Philippians. As he pondered what was excellent and praiseworthy, his perspective pinpointed onto Christ. And he put into practice what he preached. And so we are called to emulate. Remember again where Paul is writing this letter. He's in prison, just like he was in Colossae, right? in prison and he's writing to them and saying think about these things how could you sit in prison and not think about how cold it is in there how stinky it is how hungry you are how lonely how depressed all those kind of things rather he has decided to fix his mind to set time aside and boy you got a whole lot of time when you're sitting in prison right setting time aside to think on the excellencies of christ and you got to believe that that discipline of the mind that paul had informed and empowered him to write Philippians chapter 1 through Philippians chapter 3. All of that. I don't know that sitting and wasting away in prison, I could write an epistle such as this. Unless my mind was set on Christ. Can you imagine what your week would look like this week if you decided to set your mind to think, to ponder, to go back to that definition again that Matir gave us. There it is. Nope. Ponder, give proper weight and proper value to, and allow that appraisal to influence the way you live. Now, hopefully we're already doing that, of course, right? Hopefully that's not like, oh, I'm going to suddenly start thinking about the gospel in my daily life. But what if we took it to some new degree? And that's why I asked you, think on what the Holy Spirit may be speaking to your heart. What is that next level he's calling you up to? That next degree of glory that he wants to transform you into? So are you in God's word through the week and using those resources that are available to you to fill your mind with praiseworthy things? Maybe you're motivated by guilt in this sometimes. Let me tell you, guilt is an imperfect motivator. 
And if you do anything for anyone in any other relationship out of a sense of guilt, is it ever well received? Is it ever well given? If I think I really haven't done my part, now let me just say real quick, this is a completely hypothetical situation, okay? I forgot to write that in here, and I thought, as I was reading, I was like, nah. if I think I really haven't done my part around the house over the past few days, and out of a sense of guilt and self-preservation even, perhaps, I get off the couch and start taking care of household chores, Sarah could discover what I'm doing and be thankful for it. She doesn't know I'm only doing it out of guilt. Again, hypothetical situation. If she said, oh dear, I appreciate you vacuuming the living room. And if I responded, I just wanted to avoid an argument over me doing chores around here. What is she going to say? How romantic. What a sacrificial husband I have. None of those things. Now consider your spiritual disciplines in relationship to Christ. Your practices of your Christian life. Oh, I haven't read my Bible today. I guess I better pretend to be a good Christian and read for five minutes before I get back to Netflix or work or whatever it might be. How would God respond to that kind of attitude? He may say, okay, enjoy your five minutes of reading the words of the creator of the universe. But he may also, and it's my prayer, that if you happen to find yourself motivated by guilt, that that motivation would fade away into a motivation of joy that he may say, I'm going to captivate you with such rich truth that you won't want to put down your Bible, that you won't want to stop praying. I can tell you just personally, friends, I know I'm going, going off a little bit here, but we spent some time in prayer this past week, and the moment that we sat down, the moment that his words came off of the page and through the mouths of the people I was praying with, I sensed this great joy and this great conviction, not of guilt, but conviction as far as being convinced that this is true, that there is no time in prayer or in his word or in fellowship that is ever wasted. Never. And the satisfaction of being in God's presence is unparalleled. It's unmatched by anything. We may begin with practicing the filling of our minds with praiseworthy things out of guilt or apathetic duty, but God is able to transform such a measly effort through the revelation of his word. So I'll tell you this, if you can't shake guilt, then go ahead and, and be motivated by guilt. It's an imperfect motivator. It's a starting point, perhaps. It's just like a starting point to say like, wow, you know what? The truth is, is that when I came to Christ, I heard that I could go to hell for my sins if I don't get them paid for. I don't want that. Now, was my desire to escape hell the thing that got me into heaven? No. The transformation happened when I saw Jesus for who he was. And it came down to the fact that it didn't matter anymore if I was going to go to heaven or hell. I wanted to be with him. And so it is for all believers. If we have truly seen Christ being with him, being in his presence, experiencing the joy of knowing him supersedes any sense of self-preservation. He wants to create in us a deep hunger for his word. So look at Job 23, 12. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. If you're like me, you treasure food. Food is really good. I love food so much. Shouldn't go too far into it, but 
I love eating various different kinds of food. I, I even, in a serious note, I love sharing food with others. You know, uh, Sarah loves doing this too. She's not in here right now, so I can brag on her. There's some scones over there. If you guys want to take a scone, there might be a couple left. Um, and again, I'm bragging on her, not on me, so this isn't prideful here, right? Anyway, there's something about sharing food that is very spiritual, right? Something very refreshing, something very joyful. Food is a really good thing. But here, what Job is expressing is that as good as food is, is a picture of God's provision, a picture of his joy, a picture of his love, all those things. I've treasured the words of his mouth. It's greater than my daily portion of food. Far greater are the words of Christ than even what I could use to nourish my own physical body. So don't come to his word as you would dutifully come to a side salad instead of a side of french fries. Come to it with anticipation as if it were a sirloin steak, ready for you to enjoy all he has for you. Thinking on, pondering what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, will lead you to want more of those things and find it more richly in the word and in prayer and even in fellowship with other believers. When you haven't spent time in God's presence through prayers, you ought, and you come to it. You don't find our Heavenly Father tapping his foot, wondering where you've been. You find the father of the prodigal who was looking for him. A robe, sandals, a signet ring. Our Heavenly Father delights in accepting us into his presence and bountifully blesses us with great riches. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And in Christ, we are welcomed and loved by God. Let's look to the presence of the God of peace. We ought to rest in the peace that comes with being near God. Today we're going to participate in communion together, which serves to preach for us the last point of today's text. The very act Christ told us to do often in remembrance of him. Before we do, we're going to take a moment to examine our hearts and see that we deal with sin, reconcile with others if there's anything between us, as we learned from Euodia and Syntyche last week. And I'm serious about that. Let's not rush through communion. If you need to take a moment, take a moment. We'll wait till everyone has, has, has received the elements when we get up here in a moment. Take, take a second to, to consider your relationship with God. You consider your relationship with others. Whatever you need to do to prepare for communion. It, you know, I, I like to try to remind myself that communion is coming up the week before. If you haven't spent this past week in reflecting on communion, that's okay. We can give you time right now. Wherever you're going to eat for lunch is still going to be open when we get done. <laughs> we offer communion to anyone at all, anyone from anywhere who's a part of the body of Christ. You don't need to be a member at Cross Point Community Church. We do extend a word of caution, though. If you're not in Christ or if you take the communion in a flippant kind of way, disregarding the body and blood of Christ it represents, there is a danger that Paul warns of in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that, that judgment may come. He said that even some Christians had fallen asleep because they, un, they partook of the communion in an unworthy manner. That's why it's important for us to reflect. It's important for us to make ourselves um, available to what God is speaking to our hearts. We also encourage parents to discern for their children whether they have borne fruit that shows faith in Christ and repentance of sin. But communion is an illustration for us of what Christ has done to win our peace with God. 
a moment for us in communion with each other to ponder the great gift the Father has given us in his Son. And if you don't know Christ today, know that you, like any one of us, were lost from God apart from him in our sins. We've rebelled against him and earned his wrath for our sin, the evil we participate in. But God in his kindness has offered his only son at the cross to pay the penalty that ought to fall on us. We need to trust him completely for salvation. But yeah, please take your time. Please take your time as we come to this. Don't, don't rush it. Let it be a time for the Lord to speak to you and speak his great love to you. I'll go ahead and pray.